Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, activists, to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we are joined by Dr. Claire Nelson. She's a futurist, sustainability engineer, social entrepreneur, storyteller. She's the founder, founding president of the Institute of Caribbean Studies and the chief ideation leader of the Futures Forum. I invited Dr. Nelson to speak with us today because as we consider the question of what it will take to repair what race has broken in the world, it helps us to broaden our view and to consider what it will take to grow black voices in a just um, diasporatic society. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thread or Insta me at Lisa S. Harper or Thread Freedom Road at freedomroad.us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends. We have a growing audience everywhere I go. I'm hearing people say, oh, I was just listening to your podcast. I was mowing the lawn and listening to your podcast or doing whatever, doing my, my morning walk. And I love hearing that. We love hearing that. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing it with your friends. Keep sharing it and let us know what you think, okay? All right. So Dr. Nelson, I am so excited to talk with you today because I first was introduced to you and your work and your voice through a network that I'm a part of called Kairos. And Kairos, we know, means like pregnant time. It's like God is doing something in the world and we got to see what it is. Is this because the baby's coming and you can't push it back. So and, and when I was listening to you speak in, in that presentation, I had a, a really strong sense, first of all, that there's a lot of um, a lot of overlap in the work that we're doing and also a lot of um, common understanding, but also that you can bring you can bring a cutting edge of thinking into our network and, and the work that we're doing as a black futurist. And I love that you're a black futurist. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about that in a bit. But I want to ask you first. Can you share just a bit of your story with us? Um, is your story, are you, are you a person who's been grounded in faith? Is, has faith been a part of your journey and has it influenced the way that you are, you're working and doing the, what you're doing in the world? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And yes, I am a person of faith. I actually am an interfaith minister these days. And oh, wow. um, my ministry is global economic justice and global economic Fabulous. sustainability. Um, yeah. I come to this through my work in international development. I'm an engineer by training, but I've always wanted to be in politics, believe it or not. I went into engineering because my dream at, at 16 years old, growing up in Jamaica, was to be the first female prime minister. And so I thought that if I did industrial engineering, I'd be this fantastic minister of industry and planning. And therefore... I'd be recognized as the best thing since sliced bread. And therefore, <laughs> people would vote for me. Now, let me say, all of these dreams happened against the backdrop of somebody who stuttered very badly. So at 16, I'm having these visions of myself being a prime minister. And it was interesting that I had this vision because, quite frankly, I was also considered one of the, let's say, tr problem students <laughs> in my mm -hmm. high school for girls. I was the one that mm -hmm. was usually speaking up against injustice, 
And when I jumped up on my soapbox, I was quite fluent, right? So somehow there was wow. that jump in my, in my personality there. And so by the time I got to America to study industrial engineering, I was very well formed around the constructs of uh, democratic socialism and Rastafarianism because I grew up in an era in Jamaica when everybody's quote-unquote middle-class child was turning at the same Jamaica, dirty Rasta. And middle-class society was, oh, so appalled. Mrs. Stewart's son has become a Rastafarian. What are we going to do? So... I grew up in that. I came of age in an era when afros mm-hmm. were the thing. And if you had an mm-hmm. afro, if you wore your hair in tiny plaits, the school was considered a rebel because it was not the way to be. So I grew up as a rebel without a cause. And I was so without <laughs> a cause. And I found I it in that. my job at the Inter-American Development Bank. And that Can is... I, wait, before... I'm sorry, before you go there, let me just ask you this because... This is kind of amazing. You didn't just study engineering. Um, I can already tell that Dr. Nelson is a little humble, <laughs> even though she's, you know, dreaming and ideating about being the prime minister of her nation. Um, there's a little humility here. She did not just study engineering. She has a PhD in engineering. I mean, and she like she like went all the way. Um, and so that's already just kind of amazing in itself. So you did you went all the way in that. And then you went into this next phase that you're about to tell us about. Right. So I became, um, I was, always saw myself as working on international development. You know, as a developing country, you want to see your country do well. And so I went to work at the, what I call, one of the big Washington institutions. Mm-hmm. And there I met my destiny. Because mm. I found out that I was the wrong color. I had the wrong type of hair. And mm. uh, they thought I was somebody that I did not recognize. And oh, so wow. when I began to be pushed against the wall and pushed against the wall and pushed against the wall, I got very much involved in theater and dancing and culture, thinking, well, I'll just make my life, my other life, be my primary life, and this job will just be a way to live. And despite wow. my trying to ignore the hardships, I was pushed against the wall until I decided this is it. And as I said to people, I was called to the journey of becoming who I am today. I was called to fully Mm -hmm. become the rebel that now had a cause. And my cause was ensuring that people of African descent in Latin America had a voice in the institution. I became the voice of the voiceless for over 150 million black people living in Latin America to ensure that the institution that I work in would no longer count them as invisible. So what is your family's story in the Caribbean? My mother, I grew up in a Singaporean household, my mother who was a teacher. And as an only child of a teacher, I was known as Mrs. Nelson's daughter. And she was very well known. So I didn't have an identity of my own. I was Mrs. Nelson's daughter. In those uh-huh. days, teachers were very well respected. We lived on the school street. So you can imagine as uh, the only child, precocious child, uh, living on the school street, you know, in those days, you go down the road and say, Hi, hi, auntie, hi, and you go back, hi, and if you ever dare pass somebody without saying hello, even if you still <laughs> saw them five minutes before, the report uh-huh. gets back to your mother, and then you get like, How dare you pass? You know, <laughs> I grew up in this house with lots of cousins, my grandmother, 
And my mother's home was also what I call a way station for children mm. being left behind as their parents migrated to America. So I grew oh, wow. throughput of children coming through the house. I was never Wait, this alone is... as an only child. Wait, this is a part of that story of the Caribbean story that we are not aware of. Most of us are not aware of in the U.S. So a way station for children whose parents were on their way to America. I happen to know because my ancestors, my grandfather um, was brought to America, I think at three years old. Um, maybe it was 10, no, 10 years old uh, from Puerto Rico. And his parents before him had emigrated to Puerto Rico by way of St. Kitts and also um, uh, and, and Gia. And so they were they were black Caribbean going through Puerto Rico into the U.S. by the 1930s. Everybody was there. Everybody was up in the South Bronx, actually. And so, um, but it, and and it is true that he, my great grandfather, came first, and then he he sent for different family members. Is that the process that you are talking about? Yes, because in my mother's case, because she was a respected member, people mm-hmm. who couldn't bring their children immediately would leave them at the home, and then they'd be wow. sent for. So some would say three months, six months, nine months, a year. Two years, I had cousins that probably stayed two years. Then I had cousins who were sent from England to be finished, um, <laughs> you know, by my mother. So I didn't really grow up alone because I grew up in a house full. And it was not a big palatial house. It was a regular middle class, you know, three-bedroom yeah. home. Which the, I think the most we ever had one time, there were like eight of us children. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of kids. So we got three to squeeze house. up and live close and learn how to get along with others. Yeah. <laughs> because and she that was makes a, you. She was a very. Um, she was a disciplinarian. That I would say about I my see. Mom. I see. And so you know, I recently heard the term "black futurist." at a conference for the very first time, it feels like it's a really burgeoning um, stream within, um, you know, black ideation right now. And I'm wondering, can you just explain what is it and how did you come to the movement? Well, I actually prefer to call myself a global futurist who happened to be black because I didn't, I really have a different, uh, my goal is, I come to it because I work in international development. I work in a mm-hmm. global space and I was just tired of being told to be quiet. I was tired of all of these, um, you know, pundits talking about the future of the world. And none of them had my perspective as a small island developing country person. And um, then also I really recognize that the design process that many that our organizations was using tended to keep this gap. So no matter how much money we borrowed, you know, Jamaica or Nigeria, Ghana, there's always this gap between where we were and where the quote unquote, the first world was that could not only be attributed to my seasons. Some of it was just bad design. And so I realized that much of our design processes are focused on historical, historical data and also what I call straight line forecasting, as if to say the future will be a replica of the past. And indeed it's Ooh, not. So we, have this, we have these jumps because of technology and social changes. And so foresight or future thinking allows us to design more accurately and more effectively. So I started thinking about how would I use foresight and future thinking in creating and shaping development so that we have less of a gap between the emerging problem 
and emerging solution. And it's something right. because obviously I'm somebody, however, who also is deeply embedded in Gaviesque images of the history and the past and the present and the future. I'm very much a Gavi's child, if you will. I do use that lens through which I filter everything. By Garvey, you mean Marcus Garvey? Yes. Okay. And so when you're, you talked about your family earlier and it's like your upbringing with all of the kids, the eight kids in the three bedroom house, can you share a little bit more about, and really what I'm asking is, can you give us a window into the opportunity gap, the gaps um, that are created through the systems that, that were created in the midst of, um, of the history within the Caribbean and how those gaps exist today? Like, where do they come from and what do they look like today? Well, I grew up as a teacher's child, quote-unquote, in 1960s Jamaica. I would be considered like a mega-class, mega-class. Now, because I was a single-parent household, obviously the finances weren't there, but however, quote-unquote, the class and the culture was there, as opposed mm -hmm. to, say, my cousin's whose parents were not college-educated uh, the way my mother was, they would be considered right. working class. And right, so right. in Jamaica at that time, to get education was the path forward. So if you didn't pass your common entrance exam at 11 or 12 for the right high school, you automatically have a less of an opportunity of making it into the next class. So wow. getting into the right high school and right, by the right high school, most of those schools were schools that were founded by the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church. And then the government schools would be considered the lesser high schools. So wow. the prestigious schools were the Catholic schools. My school was St. Hughes High School for girls, St. Andrews High School for girls, all right? These schools and the boys had Jamaica College, Kingston College, St. George's College, Wilmers, all these schools were the better high schools. So getting that first exam was very critical. And for students who didn't pass it, it, was, it would be very traumatic. Mm-hmm. And so how does, how did the, like, can you share, how did the um, stratification between classes uh, come down from slavery, from the hierarchies of human belonging that were kind of put in place during um, the time of, of uh, slaveocracy? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm a student of history to all of that, but I do know that obviously those church schools were the ones that were first formed first and originally for the upper class, the children of the plantocracy. And then once uh. slavery was over, they began to allow others to go in. So by the time I get to school, I am probably one of the second to last years where in my class we had children of the plantocracy and the Jewish um, um, uh, elite and the Chinese elite. So, for example, one of the richest people in Jamaica, who is Jewish, a Jewish family, she was chauffeur-driven to school. Um, wow. And then we had, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, quite a few girls in my class who were like, you know, white with blonde hair, for example, or mm -hmm. very light skin. So, so that whole plantocracy mm -hmm. then and the children who were the mulattoes, if you will, would be yeah. those children whose parents were doctors and lawyers and or worked in private own their own business, insurance, and those companies, wow. merchant class, if you will, the Chinese and Indian merchant class, mm -hmm. Syrian mm -hmm. and Lebanese Jews, etc., who were the merchant mm -hmm. class. And then there was this 
in the 60s, this beginning of those people who are darker skin like myself, who now were the children of those who were like nurses and who were the first to go to teacher's college or nursing school, principals, police, those people who are in the beginning of the mega class in Jamaica. So when I was growing up as a child to work in a bank, you had to have the right skin color. So in my era, that wouldn't be me. It would have been people with like lighter skin and better hair, quote unquote. But better as I, in remember now, what they considered better, better was straighter hair. Right, right. So it's, it's, okay. it's not, quote unquote, C3 kinky. It's like straight. Right. My grandmother, for example, <laughs> my grandmother, mm-hmm. I, who was partly Indian somewhere, on my mother's mm-hmm. side and my grandmother on my father's side, who was partly, you know, white somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. They would mm-hmm. be considered color-wise, anyway, and hair-wise, in a better condition than myself, even though mm-hmm. they were both market people, right? They were both farmers and market people. Wow. But the point is, I'm bringing it up because my grandmother used to bemoan, even when she was older, you know, she was the worst of her sisters because they all had hair that was in the middle of their backs, and her hair only stopped here. So, I mean, at, at eight or five years old, this is something she took wow. seriously. So it was very much the 60s and the Black Power movement and the Afro movement was very much a part of my coming of age at 10, 11, 12. And was I was there a black from the age of 11. Was there a Black Power movement in in Jamaica or was this Black Power movement one that you were watching like Stokely Carmichael raise his fist and say Black Power and that was there influencing you in Jamaica? There was a Black Power movement in Jamaica like there was in Trinidad because we didn't have that volume of Indians against which to fight. We're mostly like Black. But it was a Black Power movement in terms of the Rastafarian movement and right. the hero movement. So it was more like the, the young people who decided to not straighten their hair and the rest of friends becoming, becoming more popular. So it was more that kind of a black power movement than in Trinidad where we had a real black versus wow. Indian ethnic racial contention that happened. That is so deep. And so when you, when you look back on that time, do you, how do you think that the movements in the Caribbean, in particular Jamaica, where you were, were impacted or influenced by the civil rights movement in America? Were there, were there, was there struggle for rights or was it more cultural rights, rights of expression There was a struggle social? for rights around, I think, Rastafarianism and, and, and the, the Rastafarian movement became mega class in the 60s and 70s, right? So mm-hmm. I think, in a sense, it mirrored each other because Rastafarians were always about African Garveyism, and they were the ones that kept the message of Garveyism alive. It was not taught. Garveyism was not taught in the schools. Marcus Garvey became a national hero, but it was just like a figure on a postage stamp. Nobody really knew what it meant to be a Garveyite. So it was without Rastafarianism, I thank God that Rastafarianism existed, quite frankly, and that I grew up in that era when it was becoming no longer the black heart man. Back in the days of my mother, he was the black heart man and he had to run from the, because, you know, this dreadlocks and they were like, you know, they were feared. So you can wow. imagine the 1960s and early 70s when middle class children now were beginning to talk about back to Africa and this whole back to Africa movement picked up steam. Then it was like shocking for those people. Like, how can you go back to Africa? We didn't come from Africa in the first place. And then people get to recognize that their blackness was about Africanity and it's not just something to be ashamed of or to be, 
you know, discarded. So that 60s was a very critical part. 1968, I certainly, um, I think I went to high school in, yeah, what, 69, I went to high school at 11, right? And so mm-hmm. 68, I don't remember specifically the day, but I remember when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Harborview, my neighborhood, I remember walking with my mother to see something on the, on the driving cinema and the place was quiet and people were crying. So I remember uh-huh. the emotion, even though I didn't know what it meant. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. That was about, what, 10, 9 or 10. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So, Dr. Nelson, are there core goals or principles that guide the work of global futurism? Well, as I practice it, (laughs) my core vision or mission is really to help people understand that the future is a shared space. And so the question I like to ask is, how do we share the future? How Hmm. do we share the planet? How do we share our economy? How do we share our healthcare system? How do we share our education system? This is shared space. And so... In the past, people of African descent have largely been uh, uh, kept away from the table, kept away from being given their fair share, even though we have created the pie, the economic pie, in which, quote-unquote, the global economy sits. So in my book, Smart Futures, I spend the whole of the first chapter defending my perspective by saying, this economy in which we sit is based on the fact that my great-grandparents were once part of the production system we were owned we were not part of the producer class we're actually the product and so for us to talk about creating a shared future in which there is inclusion and prosperity we cannot sweep under the rug the reality that the economic system in which we are embedded was built on chattel slavery Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, yes, and more yes. And I think that for some people, that is such a big thought. Um, But it is absolutely borne out all over the world. So can I ask you, you are a, and you said it, a global futurist. When you look at the diaspora, um, how far does this reach? Because in America, we tend to just think about America. We think about the U.S. um, and the fact that our economy um, is has as its foundations slaveocracy, and we left slaveocracy at the end of the Civil War, and then we didn't, right? Because then we instituted the Thirteenth Amendment, which gave a loophole. But we don't really think about we don't think about the ways that slaveocracy was a global economic structure and system. And yeah. so, um, what do you see when you look out at the diaspora? Well, well, the whole, well, first of all, if I had not probably been, if they had not tried to oppress me in my institution, if I had this, if they just made me do engineering and not try to treat me like I didn't belong, I probably wouldn't have been able to walk up 
to what my true calling was, which was to be, you know, a fighter against economic justice. But can you imagine I'm in an institution which is largely Latin American and I am being pressed against the wall and all of a sudden I wake up one day and come to find out that, wait a minute, there are black people in Colombia. Duh, how did I didn't know that? Oh my God. Uruguay. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that either. No wonder they treat me the way that they treat me because they're not used to people speaking up because guess what? Most of the black people in Uruguay, they're mostly going to be maids and yard boys and gardeners and chauffeurs. And in Colombia and even in Brazil, big, big Brazil, not even the cleaner in the office was black because those were good jobs. So when you wake up to that reality, the way I was woken up and it, I call my divine woke up was, was a divine calling. It was no, it was literally a voice, the voice of God or yeah. the angel or some spirit or somebody talking to me in my car. Um, yeah. And to me, this is my plantation. And when it said to me, this is my plantation, I remember myself in St. Jude's High School for Girls in the history class when my teacher told me if I could only write a word of history, my essay would have gotten an A. It was a fantastic piece of writing, but no history whatsoever. But I remember saying, if I had been on a plantation, I would have become a rebel. I would have become a spy. I would have been like, Uncle Tom shuffling, but I would be like carrying messages and I would secretly learn to read. I had these conversations at 12 and 13 years old in Jamaica. So studying Caribbean history. So in that moment when I was called to myself and the prodigal son and the prodigal daughter called to myself, like, this is your plantation. That's the flashback I had. And I said, oh, this is why I'm here. And then a couple months later, I got the second call that said, you are here to be the voice of the voiceless. So when you say call, this is your plantation. Yeah. When you say this is your plantation, God said this is, I mean, that's, that that needs a little unpacking. My job, the message was very clear. This Uh is, because I was crying. I was, I was crying. I was being brutalized on my job emotionally. Not, did not wow. give me work to do. No matter what I do, it was wrong. Um, trying to find ways to get me fired. It was a constant, like, you know, ducking for cover, running to cover my It was really hard, you know, trying wow. to get them to I give understand me work. That. I was commiserate with my I skin. get that. That is the plantation. Hello, somebody. Hello. And so when yes. somebody, so when, when, the, when I got, got the message, this is where plantation, mm-hmm. it was, and it wasn't, I thought it. I didn't think it. The voice was clear because I was crying. I wasn't thinking. I was just feeling sorry for myself, driving mm-hmm. to work. And the voice, mm-hmm. in this case, I would say as a woman of God, the voice says to me in Jamaican, chica yourself, girl. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where's <laughs> looking around? And, yeah. and then it says in Jamaican, your great grandmother took lash on her back in a hot cane piece. And I'm like, where's that voice coming from? And I said, are you crying because they're lashing you with them tongue? And I'm like, where's this voice coming from? I'm listening. And then it says, this is your plantation. Wow. Can I just say what I hear you saying, it goes back to something you said earlier, which is 
the future is about a shared future. And what you were being told through that job and through education and, and the colorism and all the things is that this is not your plantation. You work this plantation for the benefit of others, but you are not supposed to be at benefit from this land. But what God said to you in your car is this is your plantation too. This, you, you own this. Your people, your people made this possible. Well, I certainly remember saying to my one of my bosses who told me that I did not belong. I said, my country pays, right, pays for shares in this institution. How dare you talk to me like that? Well, I was then dispatched to the humans, to HR department with a note that I should be escorted out of the building immediately. And needless to say, clearly, I wasn't excluded out of the building immediately. This was before my calling. It was just before I got the plantation um, message. Wow. Um, but that wow. all of that was an orchestration for... Right. Because there's some people who have to do the work. Mm-hmm. And it was my work to do. I realize now that I was never meant to be a regular engineer. I was always meant to be a social engineer in that sense. Because mm. once I got the call, I realized that all of what I was to go through, somebody had to stand up. Somebody had to say, this cannot be the case. And if when I looked around to my right and my left, I only saw myself. And I was not going to go quietly into the sunset, which I told everybody, I will not ride off into the sunset, I said. And I said, if you force me to leave in a blood of disgrace, I'm going to go down in fire. And I said, wow. So I really, all of my rebel daughter callousness that I had as a child, again, I think they missed, they they thought because I stuttered, I was a mouse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was never a mouse. I was Mm -hmm. never a shy person. I just didn't talk. Mm. I was mm. always a leader. In high school, I was a leader. In my church, I was a leader. At college, I was the president of the Caribbean Students Association. And I told the people who spoke what to say, and then they would stand up and say it. When I had my wow. dance group, I couldn't, I was, we were on television and we were being interviewed, and I couldn't be the interviewee, so I told them what to say, and they said it. <laughs> so I was like a little tyrant behind you know, pushing people. So they mistook what they looked at. They thought because I stuttered and I looked like me that I was somebody who could be run over. But you know, there's a South African saying, the woman said, you have struck a rock. When they backed me up and I couldn't back up anymore, that they struck up and I came out like, and so when I launched my movement, Hmm. when I launched my movement, I say my movement, it became our movement. But when I launched mm-hmm. the movement to bring the black people from Latin America into the institution, and I found my outside partner, we were like a perfect pair, two Jamaicans, mm-hmm. one on the outside, one on the inside, and um, basically ushered in the era for blacks in Latin America to now be enjoying jobs in those kinds of institutions in Washington, D.C., so you're going to have to break this down. How did this happen? This is like, 
Okay, so so when I changed the world, um, you know, and I found a really perfect partner to do it, this is what happened. I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 you got it back. How did you change the world? What happened? How did that, how did the, was there like a, an opening in the universe and you just saw through a window and you said, this is right the way outside, we need to go? Or was it right, lots of twists and turns? Right, it was, it was very clear. When I saw the picture of black people and I saw it automatically, because their bellies were distended, it had to be Africa or Haiti. And then mm. I read the caption that says, Barranquilla, Colombia. That was when the light bulb went off in my head. And I oh, said, this yes. is why I'm here. And that's when I got the call, you're here to be the voice of the voiceless. And so, I because I was always a good, as like God has always blessed me with system thinking skills. I'm a natural system thinker. And I'm a natural right. leader. So once I see that, it's like you get you get the signals of what you're to do, and I recognize that I was to now become the voice of these black people who obviously had no voice. Because if I'm gonna be beat up for nothing other than being black, then I'm gonna give them a reason to beat me up. Yes, if you're gonna beat me, you're gonna beat me for something that counts. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> okay, so so going back to this question of um of how to move forward. What is it that you saw? You're a systems thinker when you thought, okay, we need to change the world. And in the system of how things work, this is what needs to change first. What did you, what was, what was the, this? Luckily for me, the, the, the institution had just created this thing about poverty alleviation as being the main thrust. And then I thought, aha, thank you, God. The face of poverty in Latin America is black and invisible and yes, that is how yes. luckily for me again god always provides at least one person i was then moved mm -hmm. into a new department where my chilean boss actually was quite fear and he said to me i've been told terrible things about you but i believe in giving everybody their own fair shot so tell me what you like and i'll give you an opportunity and then you rise and shine on your own thing and i said thank you god and he wow. and I, he was the first boss I had that truly, truly honored me. And I truly, uh, today, I, in fact, I've been saying, I have to find him and tell him what the hell I'm doing right now. So he's <laughs> I'm doing well. Because I really love that man. And he really mm. saw me for who I was and who I could be. And when I wrote the proposal to do the first study on blacks in Latin America, he said, ah, Carita. Take back out of the title. Take back out of the title. <laughs> so he changed oh, the And he went and he got the funding for me to do my first study. So the first study on blacks in Latin America was called Poverty Alleviation for Minority Communities in Latin America. And so he hid it under that. And because he was a nice guy, but I liked him, he kind of, you know, I don't know what he did. Anyway, I got the funding to do it. And that's yeah. how we got started. That's incredible. So the first step was getting the data, was actually yes. doing the research to get the data. Yes. And that in a systems thinking way, you can't yes. move forward without knowing what you're dealing with. Right. So what did you find? What did you find when you we found that actually, data? And we were really working as a movement because the whole thing was concocted where I had a Canadian company and we had a bad deal with them that they would hire certain people, which they did. Mm -hmm. So, it, again, divine intervention. Once you say yes, when you're called to be a change maker and you say yes, here I am, use me. Hineni, the Jewish term, right? 
Here yes. I am. Yes. Right? Yes. I yes. said yes. I was prepared then to sacrifice my career on the altar of following the footsteps of Garvey and Harriet Tubman and Nanny and all the people who I looked up to. Wow. So wow. I was That's very amazing. conscious. It was an intentional decision that I was going to be this person. And yeah. so all yeah. of the all of my natural ability to plot then, if you will, mm-hmm. <laughs> before. Um, and I'm blessed that I was gifted with that skill set, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. What are the obstacles that you've run into as you have begun to plot this way forward? What are the main obstacles that you that you continually run into? Well, between, I would say, we started this work in 1994, and it was very tough because you're by yourself. You have mm-hmm. to learn to be alone, truly alone, mm-hmm. in a different way. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, mm-hmm. when you begin to take on a system, your friends can't afford to be seen with you. So you are now mm-hmm. dangerous, right? I was considered yes. dangerous. So I didn't have a lot of friends. And the friends I had me really couldn't be seen in public. I didn't want them to also be hurt by association with me. So they would be like private friends, right? They, they, we couldn't right, have lunch right. together, for example. So I wow. got used to eating by myself, being by myself a lot. And um, luckily for me, I had my outside life. So the Institute of Caribbean Studies was a way in which I was able to also create another space for myself to mm-hmm. fully experience all of my gifts and all of mm-hmm. who I was meant to be um, by mm-hmm. creating an outside space where I could be in charge of something while I'm inside dodging bullets and try to, you know, stay alive while I'm carrying this ball, um, trying to get this black thing on the agenda. It was really a very um, emotional time. And that yeah. is where I began to find faith again. Because the first oh, couple wow. of years, I had to rely on my mother's faith to carry mm-hmm. me through. And it took mm-hmm. me, I would say, several years of serious work to get to the point where my own faith could carry me through. Wow. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So as we consider the future of the diaspora and, you know, thinking about, you know, you were kind of um, pushed into this work when you began to understand that we have a diasporatic problem that is not actually our problem. That's how I'm interpreting it. It's not a, a black problem. It's actually a problem of how people have created the same kind of hierarchies of human belonging in the in the wake of slavery all over the formerly colonized world and actually in, in some cases continuously colonized world. So the same structures, the the colorism, the closer you get to the top, you are white. And the whiter you are, the more rights you have. And the blacker you are, the less rights you have. And, and not just rights, but also right to, to take up space in society. Um, you know, so those kind of things are with that revelation is what pushed you into uh, or compelled you into this work. Now, when you look forward, can I ask you to kind of paint a picture for us of what um, what a future of flourishing for the diaspora would require of the way things work? How would things have to change 
in order well, for us to is, flourish? This is really something I am working on and struggling with. And I love the word flourishing because I think flourishing is implies a garden that is growing and right. implies yes. the right amount of rain, the right amount of nutrients. Mm. And it's mm. there's no waste in this garden because everything is used just in the right amounts. And mm. so for me, mm -hmm. I, I think for people of the African diaspora, future of flourishing requires that we really recalibrate what we consider to be the metrics that matter. I okay. think the GDP in certain Caribbean has not served us because the trickle-down economics have not really worked. Um, because the Caribbean, would be, one could say, is a nice test bed. We're fairly small. We have islands from 60-something thousand to um, Jamaica, 2.5 million, Haiti, 40, what, 14 million, Dominican Republic, etc. But by and large, I would say they're pretty small countries in which you can test out different things. The English-speaking Caribbean, which is the CARICOM countries, which includes also Haiti and Suriname, obviously mm -hmm. as a grouping, most of those came out of British colonialism, but obviously we had Dutch as well, right? In the Caribbean, mm -hmm. we have mm -hmm. colonialism and Spanish and French. Yes. And we yes. see the same income gap. So the income inequality in across the Americas, from Canada mm -hmm. to Argentina, is there mm -hmm. and is the largest in the world because of the history of slavery. Mm -hmm. And so it means then that from people on this side of the world, Americas, I think we have to really think through what it is that we're going to be asking of an economic future in which profits is paramount, in which people sort of don't matter, and the, the, the people and the well-being of people are not foremost. So we have a society that is based, and this is from America all the way down to Latin America, uh, even though we have this fight for you know, democratic socialism to communism, to, there's this big fight. But obviously the global IMF and those structures are based on the profit motive. How is that? IMF is what? Can you? IMF in, is international. The International Monetary Fund, which is the bank of central banks. So mm -hmm. they set mm -hmm. the rules on money and currency by which we all have to follow the rules. Mm -hmm. And okay. they're still basing their reality on what I call a 20th, 20th century paradigm when the goods, mm -hmm. which were our forebears, were transported on ships. And then the sugar was going this way, and the tea was going this way, and the cocoa was going this way, and the salt was going, and then the slaves were going this way. And now, the economic theories, just you know, this whole time curve and information curve and all of these things, and now we have time and money and goods arriving instantly. When you download a Netflix video and you're buying that content, the money and the wait time you download it is what, 0.05 seconds. Where is the Literally. time information gap in this curve? So I, and when I ask these economists who run the world, how are you possibly claiming to use the same supply and demand curve theory when we're now in quantum time? We do not operate in a world where it's Newtonian physics anymore. Time and money move instantly. Wow. So it's flawed. The system is flawed. And so we are... What are the implications? Wait, wait, wait. What are the implications <laughs> of that? Because you just dropped a major bomb. <laughs> and now I need to know 
like, what does that bomb do to the way that I see the world? What are the implications of what you just said? All of us have to stop and think, what does a free democracy look like in the 21st century when we can now press a button and know everything at the same time and everybody, if you have the right broadband? This is why this whole fight for broadband access is so critical. Because right. if That's I'm right. on a slow band and you're on a high band and it takes me 20 minutes to download a file and takes you two minutes to download a file, I'm disadvantaged. So I'm saying wow. we cannot be fighting 21st century battles on 20th century theories. And we need to have a group of people who are thinking seriously about what it is we want to have as a future of America. What is the future of the American dream? If indeed there is no poor people to be exploited, if everything is robotized and even Shikwana, Tequisha, whatever, can't even work at, 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 at McDonald's because it's all automated. What's going to happen to those people? If all the gas stations are automated and they can't even pump gas, what is going to happen to those people? White, black, brown, and every color in between. The response could be, well, there will be other low, like low, quote, low skill jobs that they can they can do, like building the robots or something like that and some kind of procession line. But another response could be the beefing up of our education system and the changing of the way that the education system is funded so that Laquisha and um, and Robert can actually get an equitable education. Where do you fall in that? I think that, yes, that is true. But however, because the proper motive is still paramount and the conception patterns of the 20th century are still what is driving our living, we are going to run over the cliff as a species because of our insatiable greed and our lack of attention to the fact that we cannot continue to consume the planet at 1.5 times or however much times it is the planet can replenish itself. And this is where we are on a very slippery slope to hell, everybody. And for me, and this is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) You are dropping bombs and I need you to slow down for a minute so that we can catch up. So you, what you have said is we are on a slippery slope to hell. And I want to make sure I understand why it's because we already consume more than what the planet can actually provide. And now we can do it in quantum time. The amount of time it takes for us to consume is, what did you say, 0.095 seconds as opposed to 20 days for something to arrive in the mail. Is that what you're saying? Right. Because okay. we're now downloading our movies, we're downloading our news, we're practically instant delivering our food, right? That's so right, literally, yes. Everything yes. is sped up to match this fast, everything fast world. And so our wow. metrics, which are still based on profit, and can you imagine those states in which people have become alive and alert are saying, wait a minute, let's use ESG safeguards. Let's put in some, some social safeguards. Let's put in some environment safeguards. And then there's some jokers who are saying, oh no, your city can't do this, you know, because you know, oil must still be king. I am saying all of us are the, the profit motive that we use to get us to this far. It might have served us well as a species. It will not serve us going forward as a species. And I believe... Because profit, sorry, sorry, I'm breaking in just to, to clarify, because 
profit, if profit is our motive, then that will only cause us to speed production from where it is even today because we want more. The question is, how do we get more? And you're saying we, we can't do more. We can't sustain more. Is that right? Right. I'm saying we have okay. to change our value system. So yes, what okay. it is that we, the formerly enslaved, the formerly oppressed, have to offer the world? It cannot just be a follow copycat um, economic thrive to have the best bling, the best designer outfit, the best. I'm saying we need Amen. to use our spiritual intelligence that have managed to keep us on the straight and narrow path. Can you imagine the fact that when you yes. think about when you think about the fact, I don't know what what is this white fragility madness, but when you think about Hello. the fact, there has not been any major anti-white uprising by any black community anywhere from Argentina to Jamaica and Jamaica, I'm bringing Jamaica because Jamaicans can get quite violent, right? To Canada, <laughs> right? So, right, yeah. So this, this fear that is white fragility that they need to wake up and smell the coffee. There is, God made enough genius across every color line possible. Amen. Right? Amen. So whether yes. you are Asian, Asian Pacific, Asian Indian, Black from Hermetic, Semitic, Bantu, whatever, there's enough genius in every ethnic group, although from thousands of different people that yes. are made by this creator God that we all worship, whatever we call him, Yahweh, whatever, you know, Allah, mm -hmm. it's the same creator, right? From my person, mm -hmm. as an interfaith mm -hmm. person. So I believe that we need to wake up and use our emotional intelligence that has got us this far where we who have been so brutally oppressed and suppressed even those of us who are quote-unquote awake do not turn around and want to bite and destroy and tear down what exists we recognize right. that some of what has come out of the 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 the, the, the evil in society has produced some good things right all we're saying mm -hmm. is, let us look at who we are now. Let us recalibrate our humanity based on where we are today. Let us look on the wrongs of the slavery past. Let us ensure that the economic systems, the financial systems, don't further punish small and poor countries at Caribbean by giving us the same interest rate, which we cannot afford to pay as countries which have more than what we have. We have a hurricane mm -hmm. every five years or every three years. We have to borrow with the same interest rate. We don't have more term. How do we create a just world without borders? The reality is when we now know that it's one blue marble from this from space, why are we pretending mm -hmm. if we can lock off ourselves from each other? It is not possible. Mm. So mm. the lessons that we've been learning through the United Nations and these various movements mm. and the Earth Day movement and the climate justice movement and the economic justice movement, the lessons that we've been learning, what we need to do is cross-fertilize and, mm -hmm. and, and pick up some new metrics. Let us be smart. Let us ask questions about sustainability. Let us talk about metrics that really matter. What matters is that we have lives, a quality of life, of well-being, that we feel free, that we feel like we can accomplish our full self without harming others. 
Yes. It means we need to really look at the future we want as Americans uh-huh. for a better America and for more people. Can you, can you share what some of those metrics that you're talking about might look like? I would like to see some cities even test out what a well-being metric would look like in yeah. cities like Chicago, like New York, right. like mm-hmm. Boston, like Baltimore. Philadelphia, Baltimore. I'm going to throw my, my, my city yeah, so into let's it. Talk Philly, about absolutely. That's small, right, compared to New York. Mm-hmm. You don't think it's too much. But Baltimore mm-hmm. is small. Why can't Baltimore test out a well-being metric, run a longitudinal experiment for five to ten years? Let us teach people what it means. Let's make it so people understand what they're looking at. Let us really put in place these new ideas about wow. community development, um, yeah. schools. Do you know that it costs a hundred fifty thousand dollars to keep a black person in prison, right? A black man in prison in Maryland, the state of Maryland, mm-hmm. or thereabouts, and they're only spending thirty something thousand dollars per black boy in elementary school. What if That's we could right. flip that switch or even it out? So then we have less black boys moving from elementary schools that are underserved, understaffed, under everything, and preparing them to be citizens that can actually contribute to society and having yeah. them end up in jail and creating havoc on all of us. Can I make a suggestion? I mean, some, some of the metrics that I think of, I mean, I was just, I learned recently that, I mean, actually, it's, it's something that was like reinforced recently, but I actually learned this a couple, like a decade ago, is that the more green space you have in a city, the safer the city is, right? So one metric is how much green space do you have in your city? Like exactly. how much, right? How much, how much oxygen are you able to pump into the atmosphere through, through green gardens and, uh, and trees and things like that? That's a metric that a city can easily take. Exactly. Another one is, right? Exactly. Another one is how much light. I love that. So that could be part of the well-being metrics that was okay. Here's right. some metrics that we want to look at because studies have shown that these metrics make a difference. How do we yeah. then create community commissions at the ANC level, they already have these systems or, or that the census track level or whatever, and say, let us really test out this because if we're talking about a future in which we have artificial generalized intelligence, yeah. right? Yeah. And they say, okay, well, we're going to pay people to stay home and do nothing. Let me tell you, the devil find work for idle hands to do. If people do not have mm-hmm. something to do, Yes, it is not that we want to be defined by our work, but the fact is people need to do something. You cannot yes. to stay home and do nothing because it means That's that right. they are not being actualized. They will become destructive. Is this what yeah. we want for the future? So we have to think about what does an America look like when we have chat GBT now in the school system after 10 years? What is the education system? It means that this whole rote learning and taking exams is totally useless. We have to learn how to problem solve, critical thinking. We have to learn caring skills. How are we going to learn to care about each other if everybody is in a charter school, a charter school for Muslims, a charter school for Christians, a charter school for blacks, a charter school for whites, a charter for Koreans? How do we learn to be American? We need to have a proper public school where everybody makes up and we learn how to get along. Yes, and that that needs to be a metric. How many how many spaces in your city 
do you have where people can come together and learn how to get along, right? Or, and how many schools do you have where that can happen? Or, and that, what that would do is, it, and I love this because it takes it and puts it into a positive thing that, that cities and, and um, new municipalities can reach for because it's proven. We know that these things work um, rather than just saying, okay, we have a school segregation problem. And then you end up like just kind of drowning in the history of the problem of school segregation as opposed to just saying, okay, how do we build more spaces where our children can learn how to get along? Right? Exactly. And wow. I really that think is so that, good. I really think that we need to have a whole future of America, future of American dream um, policy slash people's movement where people are mm-hmm. consciously and intentionally trying to create these kind of living experiments. America, for all its flaws, is a great experiment in democracy. Yes, it is. It's the first. Everybody it's the first major the world, experiment. Everybody mm-hmm. from around the world has come to America. And my question is, are we going to allow America to self-destruct? Or are we oh. going to get off of this polarized extreme left and extreme right and find some pragmatic people like myself in the middle that really want to live and live a good life and find ways mm-hmm. in which we can, as Rodney King said, learn to get along. Hello, somebody. And you know what? We have what it takes to do it. We have the money. We found the money in the middle of COVID. We were giving out money left, right, and center. We made money in order to get through COVID. We can do this. We can do this. Wow. So last questions. Um, What is your hope for the diaspora? Just can you paint us your hope? What's your hope? When When you look 50 years from now, global futurist that you are, where do we, what do you hope to see for our people around the world? I have my vision of Ubuntu economics and the yeah. Africa Caribbean Pacific Rising movement has really yeah. done a good job in creating smart futures, smart communities. And we mm-hmm. are able to be leading and helping to lead humanity into a flourishing life. Mm. Amen. Amen. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wherever our guests lay their head that night. This episode was engineered and edited and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. Freedom Road podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. And those updates are now coming on Substack. Somebody say Substack. Substack is where you can find Freedom Road on Substack. And, uh, you know, my Substack column comes out there. It's called The Truth Is. Comes out once or twice a month, actually. And then we have lots of other great content there as well. 
So if you are a patron with our Patreon plat platform or a paid subscriber on Substack, then you get a special treat. You're going to get a private conversation, a one-on-one -on -one conversation with us between myself and Dr. Claire Nelson. Oh,